Hello and welcome to episode number 165 of the Agro Innovations Podcast. This episode of the podcast has been released onto agroinnovations.com on Monday, January 26th, 2015. Now, this episode and my comments before and after have been pre-recorded, as at the moment I am in uh, Bolivia in South America. This episode of the podcast has been divided into two parts. And the first part, uh, as you will see and hear, is a discussion of uh, the dynamics of transitioning from tobacco in the southeastern United States. And the second part is a much more detailed conversation about crop insurance. Um, Now, I divided this interview up into two parts, primarily for the reason uh, that the crop insurance piece, I believe, is very, very important to the dynamics of sustainable agriculture and to the potential for sustainable agriculture to grow and scale and to do so in a way that is economically sustainable for the producers who are in that arena. So it is an incredibly critical topic. And I did not want that topic to be buried at the end of an episode, uh, considering that the topic is not necessarily something that people get excited about or jazzed up about. Um, And, you know, a lot of people by the 30-minute mark, maybe at that point, tune out. They may not always listen to an entire episode. And so I wanted to include that critical information in an episode of its own and um, early on in the game. So that was my reasoning behind doing that. And so I really want you to stay tuned uh, for next week's episode because this uh, discussion of crop insurance is very, very important. And particularly if you are a small diversified producer, uh, the changes that are happening in the crop insurance marketplace affect you personally and affect the economic viability of your uh, farming operation. So with that said, uh, please stay tuned next for next week's episode. We will dive into that conversation in much more detail and uh, give you the information that you need to take advantage of some of the uh, programs and crop insurance programs that are now coming out for uh, small diversified producers. If you like this podcast and would like to support what I do, you can click on the PayPal donate button on the agroinnovations.com website. Also, Agroinnovations is on Twitter at Agroinnovations, and also there is a Facebook page for the Agroinnovations podcast, and there's a link to that on agroinnovations.com. If you have a question or comment to me, uh, you can click on the contact link on the website. So with that said, let's get into my interview with James Robinson of Rafi. On this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, we are joined by James Robinson, who is with Rafi. And James, you are based um, on the eastern seaboard, I believe in the south. Uh, You have done a lot of work with farmers in that part of the country Tell us first, uh, what does Rafi stand for, and uh, what does Rafi do? Well, uh, Rafi stands for the Rural Advancement Foundation International, and we work with family farms uh, around the country, and really the core of our work is direct service to farmers who often find themselves in some sort of uh, financial crisis, and, and, and we have a number of staff members that... Uh, literally take phone calls in the middle of the night from farmers if, if they end up in some sort of financial crisis and 
need to figure out a way to uh, negotiate um, uh, an outcome with uh, a lender that, that allows them to, to stay on the farm and protect the farm for the next generation. Um, we also are, are fairly well known in North Carolina. We're based in, in Pittsburgh, North Carolina, for a program uh, called the Tobacco Communities Reinvestment Fund. Um, and this was um, a program that grew out of the end of the tobacco quota system. And uh, we, it, as that program ended, we, we anticipated a lot of farmers transitioning away from tobacco production and into uh, sort of often specialty crops, um, but, but also highly diversified operations that incorporated agro-tourism uh, and, and, and other things like that. And uh, the, the reinvestment fund that we, we manage provides cost-share grants um, that, are, that are targeted toward uh, producers in tobacco-dependent counties in North Carolina. And, and those cost-share grants are between $8,000 and $10,000, and we've been doing this for about 17 years now. And it's really um, an effort to help fund the front edge of agriculture that is, that is really innovative and, and, and working to, to lead the transition away from tobacco production in North Carolina. Um, uh, of course, through both of those programs, both the financial counseling and the, and the grants that we provide, uh, we, we learn a great deal that we're able to apply to the uh, state and federal policy system. Uh, we have, have learned a lot about risk management strategies and about um, how to be prepared for disasters and how to, uh, what it takes to access credit so that you can finance your transition. And we've, we've taken those lessons and tried to help um, form better policies at the state and federal level for, for producers. So that, that really is sort of the core of, uh, of what we do at RAFI. We, we have a number of other programs um, that uh, deal with, with rural hunger issues, and you know, those, are, those are programs that um, are sort of a, a, a key component to addressing uh, both justice and poverty issues in, in, in rural counties in the southeast and in North Carolina which are all issues that are, um, that are linked in to, to these, you know, these, these agricultural issues and, and uh, are uh, a core part of, of what we do at RAFI. So I want to dive into this story of tobacco and insurance in some detail. I know that uh, you are quite an expert in that area, but before we go there, you mentioned that... Uh, Rafi helps uh, farmers when they come to some sort of financial crisis and need to negotiate a settlement. Can you tell us about that? I mean, what is the dynamic there? Is that is how common is that? What is driving farmers to this crisis, and um, how are these crises generally resolved? Yeah, it's it's a great question, um, and and I'll I'll say up front that that this is. <laughs> probably a, a great question for two other folks on our staff, um, and, and I'm not going to be able to provide as good an answer as, as they could. Joe Schroeder and, and Benny Bunting are, are really the experts in this field on our staff, and Benny Bunting has been doing this since 1983, so he's been doing this since the, the 80s farm crisis and, and has a lifetime worth of uh, experience doing this. But, you know, generally uh, what happens uh, is that uh, a farm 
either through some sort of event that that causes the farm to go into a financial um, crisis, whether that be a, a weather disaster or some sort of loss of market, or or it, it, frankly, it could be something like discrimination. Um, we have have worked a lot on uh, discrimination in in uh, agricultural institutions and. Sometimes those lead into financial crises. Um, farmers are are unfairly um, denied uh, loans in some cases, and 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 that's another factor that can lead into financial crisis. Uh, but generally, we get a phone call. I mean, we you know about a couple times a week, um, we will have a staff person here in the office that gets a phone call from a farmer that says something along the lines of they're going to come take my equipment on Friday. And and it may be before they've been able to harvest the crops that are going to help them pay back that loan. And the job of, of Joe Schroeder and Benny Bunting on our staff is to literally just sit down at the kitchen table with those farmers and work through their books and then sit down with their lender and try and come up with a way to pay back that loan that that farmer uh, farmer owes the lender. So really, it's a it's a process by which that we become really familiar with the farmer's books and then serve as an advocate for the uh, the farmer with the lender. And over the the decades that we've been doing this, we we have been very uh, proud to say that we have um, close to a ninety percent success rate when we do this. And that that success rate is is sort of measured by whether or not we've helped the farmer achieve the outcome they wanted, uh, and oftentimes that outcome is preserving the farm for the next generation. And what's what's interesting and, and unfortunate about some some types of production, specifically poultry production, um, we we take a lot of cases with uh, with large scale poultry farmers. Uh, that are operating large-scale chicken houses for companies like Purdue and Tyson. Those are the toughest uh, cases for us to 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 find a good outcome. Um, and and when we say we're you know we're really proud that we have a a, a success rate approaching 90% when we do this, um, that number breaks down. That 90% success number breaks down when we include uh, poultry growers. Uh, it's very very difficult to. And so you can imagine if you've got three or four poultry houses and you've lost your contract all of a sudden, so you're no longer getting birds from the company to grow in those poultry houses because the, the birds are owned by the company and they deliver the chicks to the farmer to grow. And if you're no longer getting those chicks, you may have a million dollars worth of debt in those poultry houses. These poultry houses are very expensive, often fairly technical, uh, technically complex and equipped uh, houses these days. Um, and farmers go into a lot of debt to build those. So if you've got you know, close to a million dollars worth of debt in a poultry house and you don't have any birds in that poultry house, there's really not another way to service that debt. Um, it's, or it's very difficult to figure it out because often there's not another market that's going to allow you to to bring in the kind of income you were bringing in with uh, with with those uh, birds, and there have been a lot of 
potential solutions kicked around or, or, or ideas kicked around about how we solve this. You know, we, we hear a lot of times, well, why don't those producers go into organic markets? Well, I mean, the problem is, is, is that those, those producers were moving 30 or 40,000 birds at a time. And, and even though organic markets are higher value markets, it's hard to find an organic market where you can move enough birds to service the debt on that house. And so it becomes very, very difficult to save a farm that is in that much debt, and there's just not another way to service that debt unless they get chickens in those houses. So, um, so that's, I mean, that's really a, a, a sort of a snapshot of, of, of what the financial counseling looks like when we, uh, when we engage in that. And, and some of the, the challenges that we face when you end up with uh, a, a particular circumstance where the debt level is very high and there are few options, uh, few markets available for that producer to explore other, other methods of production that would service that very high level of debt. Well, it's a fascinating topic in and of itself. Um, I, I, when, when you say that you have the, a few calls a week, you know, that makes me think, what about all the farmers that don't know you guys exist and would like to call you but just uh, can't? And, of course, that's no fault or blame on you. Uh, I'm sure you do a lot of outreach, uh, but you can't reach everyone, as you know. Um, so that just uh, goes to show that uh, this is a, a common phenomenon. And also, you know, it makes me think of all the people who are losing their homes, uh, very analogous to a farmer losing his or her equipment. Um, right, I guess right. people go bankrupt all the time, and this is not a new story, of course, but uh, it, it really is a shame to see that happening uh, as, as we are experiencing so much unemployment and drops in labor force participation in other areas in this country in these days. Uh, it, it's too bad that that's a, a phenomenon that continues to put farmers under financial duress. But uh, I would maybe like to have uh, some of your colleagues on the show to, to talk about this in more depth. At this point, I think it makes sense to jump into your area of expertise, which is this tobacco transition and insurance marketplace. Yeah, um, yeah. Why don't we start by telling us about, you know, tobacco has a very rich history in North America. Can you just give us maybe the, the two-minute version of uh, the history of tobacco in your part of the country? Sure. Well, for a long time in North Carolina, the um, uh, tobacco production was supported by a quota system that uh, it was essentially a price support in the marketplace that um, set up um, restrictions on acreage that could could be in production for tobacco and if you were a farmer that had um, uh, acreage that was a part of the quota system then you could grow your um, your portion of, of the quota and in and it kept the price of tobacco fairly, uh, fairly high. I mean, that was the intent. And, and uh, tobacco producers could make a living and send kids to college on relatively small uh, acreage because the, t- uh, the price of tobacco was very high per acre. And in 2004, um, we saw the end of the tobacco quota system and, and what's known as the tobacco buyout. Um, and beginning in 2005, um, there were those those price supports went away, and those uh, planting restrictions went away. And so, I mean, you can imagine, you know, without being an economist, that 
if the, uh, the price supports go away and the acreage restrictions go away, you're going to have a lot more tobacco planted and the price is going to go down. So uh, along with the end of the, uh, the, the quota system, uh, we have the tobacco uh, transition payment program. This is also known as a tobacco buyout. Um, and that provided payments to tobacco growers that uh, had, a, had uh, a stake in the quota from 2005 to 2014. And so that means uh, there were farmers, you know, even though they didn't have um, uh, those price supports and planting restrictions that kept the price of tobacco high, uh, they were still getting a check as a part of the tobacco buyout program until 2014. So what's interesting about, about the, you know, the timing of this conversation that we're having now is that 2015 will be the first year uh, really ever that, that tobacco doesn't have any sort of uh, safety net um, as far as a quota system or, or uh, buyout payments coming to these farmers. And what it's, what it's done in North Carolina is really changed the landscape of tobacco production. So in 1997, before the end of the quota system and, and the tobacco buyout, we had over 12,500 tobacco farms in, uh, just in North Carolina. And according to the 2012 Census of Ag, which is the most recent Census of Ag that we have, we have 1,682 tobacco farms. So that's an 87% drop in the number of tobacco farms in North Carolina over 15 years, just 15 years. And the acreage is an interesting thing to look at. So remembering that we have an 87% drop in tobacco farms, um, we actually only have a 16% drop in, in acreage. So what you would think ha happens you know, when you, when you uh, take away the planting restrictions um, and the price goes down, you have to grow more of it. Um, you, have to, you have to really look at economies of scale and what is going to cash flow for your operation. So in 1997, we had um, close to 690,000 uh, acres in production. And in 2012, we still have 580,000, 581,000 acres in production, which is, as I said, only a 16% drop. So it means that those farmers, that those tobacco farmers that remain, have really gotten much, much bigger in order to deal with the fact that they have lower, uh, lower prices. Um, what that also means, uh, when we think about an 87% drop in, in, in tobacco farms, um, it means that there were a lot of farms that looked for something else to do. Uh, they looked for something else to, uh, to grow. And um, I, I mentioned uh, my colleague, Joe Schroeder. Uh, I've had conversations with him and asked, you know, well, what did, what did tobacco growers transition to? Um, what was the, you know, was there an obvious crop? Well, we're not growing tobacco anymore, so we're going to grow this thing. And, and as Joe has, ex has explained it uh, many times, there wasn't really a silver bullet. There wasn't an obvious crop that you had to transition, that you were going to transition to, because there was nothing that was going to give you the kind of income that tobacco gave you when, when the quota system was in place. So you really had to become very entrepreneurial as a farmer to stay in farming and not grow tobacco. Uh, it meant that you had to look at incorporating uh, agritourism into your farm. It meant that you had to look at higher value markets. So that's uh, uh, or organic markets. Um, that's farmer's markets. That's roadside stands where you get a sort of a, a premium price for your 
your your product. And and there are a few farms in North Carolina that we work with pretty closely that we can point to as having done this really successfully. Um, one great example would be the Volmer Farm in Bunn, North Carolina. Um, they were tobacco producers, and, and at one point, uh, John Volmer was the president of the North Carolina Tobacco Growers Association. And they, uh, early on in, in, in this process of transition away from tobacco production, um, uh, John really, who, who actually passed away just this, this past year, and his son, uh, Russ, now, now operates that family farm. Um, but, but they really looked at what their options were going to be as, as the, you know, the end of the quota system was, was upon everyone and um, the, the new difficulties of being a tobacco farmer became obvious. They, they said, all right, well, what else can we do? And, and they have really very successfully incorporated both agro-tourism into the farm. Uh, they grow a lot of organic vegetables they, uh, and, and fruit. Um, uh, they're, uh, I think, most famous uh, for their strawberries. They grow uh, USDA-certified organic strawberries. Um, you can find them in Weaver Street Market in North Carolina. Um, and, and that story is, is, you know, is a great example of, of a farmer that, uh, of a farm family that, that sort of successfully looked at the, uh, the landscape of tobacco production in North Carolina and said, you know what, this is a, this is not going to be an easy thing to stay in. And, and we need to figure out what those new high value markets are going to be in order to, um, remain viable as a small family farm. And, and that's, and that's what a lot of other producers have tried to, uh, to do. And, and that's really where our tobacco community reinvestment fund grant, uh, comes in. Um, it, it's, it's really there to provide the initial, um, uh, financing that uh, a producer may need to get that that new idea off the ground. I mean, maybe they're going to do um, greenhouse tomatoes, or or they're going to transition to organic strawberry production, but they need a new packing house for that. And and so that grant is really to aid in that transition from tobacco to the these new higher value markets that that are going to be um, what keeps small family farms in business in North Carolina. So um, just to backtrack a little bit, sure. what was it that was driving, uh, I guess you called it the tobacco buyout? I mean, is it just that uh, the health consequences of tobacco and nobody wants it anymore? I mean, why, why, this, why this push to transition from tobacco? Well, uh, it, it is a good question. I think a lot of it had to do with, um, with the health impacts of, of tobacco, um, at the same, around the same time, we had the Master Tobacco Settlement, which makes payments to states um, as a result of the health impacts that, that tobacco smoking has had on, uh, on, on individuals living in, in states and, and the cost that that has um, brought on states. But, um, you know, there were, uh, there were political forces behind it that I'm, I'm not, you know, entirely aware of uh, that it, it, it slightly predates uh, my work on this, but it, it certainly has a lot to do with uh, with the health impacts and sort of the changing national landscape around tobacco production as a result of, of sort of everyone's recognition that um, there are severe health impacts uh, to, to smoking and that tobacco production was something that, you know, politically was going to be 
harder and harder to uh, support. But as you said, there was really no decline in acreage over this 10 or 15 or whatever 20-year period. So um, was this some kind of uh, ploy to consolidate the tobacco production into a few hands? I mean, it's conceivable that yields have actually gone up as the farms have consolidated into, into fewer hands. So it doesn't seem like the intended or at least the ostensibly intended outcome of uh, less tobacco being produced was even achieved. Well, I don't know that. I, I can't say. Again, some of this, some of this predates my work on this, but I can't say that the the outcome or the intended outcome was necessarily less tobacco production. I think the intended outcome was to, you know, sort of get rid of a depression era price support program for tobacco and and sort of let the free market take its course on tobacco production as as is the case with most um, most agricultural production. Um, these kinds of quota systems were much more common uh, a number of decades ago than they are now, and and uh, tobacco is one of the last uh, standing. And so part of it is, is just a move away from, from those types of um, acreage planting restrictions. Um, I mean, we've seen the same thing in, in Midwestern uh, commodity production. Um, uh, we, we have for a long time in agriculture now been in this sort of uh, go big or, or get out mentality uh, where the price of, of, of commodities you know is, is, is low enough that you've got you've got to continually try and grow more and more acreage in order to, to make an operation cash flow or, or get more out of the acreage that you have um, right exactly so so the uh, tobacco producers, you're saying, they're not receiving any kind of subsidy whatsoever, or are there other, you know, hidden subsidies to this tobacco industry that uh, are not so apparent? Well, um, there is crop insurance, um, and, and, and uh, I'm, I'm not an expert on tobacco crop insurance. I've, I've, I am more of an expert on crop insurance for, um, for specialty crops and for diversified operations. But uh, crop insurance in, in, in the U.S., if, if it's an, an RMA, a, a USDA risk management agency product, then there is a federal subsidy there. So the farmer is not paying the full uh, premium price. Part of that uh, premium is subsidized. So, uh, you know, if, if you, you know, are looking for sort of additional, uh, additional government supports for agriculture, that is, I mean, that is one. Um, it, and, and that was a, a big move in the 2014 Farm Bill toward, there was a big move in the 2014 Farm Bill toward uh, the use of, of crop insurance as risk management instead of um, traditional uh, uh, direct payments and counter-cyclical payments. And so where is cooperative extension in all this? Uh, it sounds like this would be something that would be right up their alley, Um are you guys working in collaboration with them, or are they kind of not in the picture, uh, or, or is it pretty much Rafi just kind of taking the lead? Oh, no. I, th- I think, you know, we work very much in collaboration with Cooperative Extension, and Cooperative Extension has, has you know, done a great job in, in North Carolina in, in, in many, many ways. Um, you know, the, they're, um, I think, experiencing some challenges with uh, their budget cuts. There have been some statewide budget cuts to cooperative extension, as there have been in, in many, many other areas of the state budget. And so, uh, you know, they're, 
I think experiencing some challenges there, but uh, you know they have they have done an excellent job uh, addressing this and uh, working to be there for the farmers that are uh, transitioning away from tobacco production. We have a really outstanding extension agent in in Chatham County where we're located, um, Debbie Roos, who focuses on uh, on, on small farms and sustainable production and, and really has been a leader uh, within extension on, on uh, transitioning, uh, helping farms transition to higher value markets and, and helping new farms uh, enter those higher value markets. Um, so extension has certainly, uh, certainly been uh, a great partner in this. That concludes the first part of my interview with James Robinson of the Rural Advancement Foundation International, also known as RAFI. And stay tuned, as I said at the beginning of this episode, for next week's episode where we will continue this conversation with James and really dive into the nitty-gritty of crop insurance. And as I also said before, uh, you don't want to miss that, especially if you're a small diversified producer. Because uh, this crop insurance story is changing quickly and uh, some real signs of progress and hope for the small diversified sustainable producer or any type of uh, sustainable diversified producer, whatever uh, size or scale you are operating at. If you have recently donated to the podcast and I have not uh, thanked you for that um, on 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 any of the recent episodes themselves, Please remember that I am not recording these episodes uh, right before they go out. In fact, most of them have been, uh, the past three or so episodes have been recorded uh, several weeks prior, and uh, I am currently in Bolivia, South America. And if you want to follow my adventures in Bolivia, just go ahead and uh, visit agroinnovations.com, and uh, surely you will see some Uh, blog posts and the like. Uh, Certainly on Twitter, I will be updating things. And I hope to share some uh, photos and writings and observations with you. And hopefully, uh, I'll be able to produce some podcasts while I'm in Bolivia as well. A reminder that this and all episodes of the Agro Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Like 3.0 license. That is a very permissive license. So, If you would like to use this podcast in any of your creative endeavors, please feel free to do so, provided that you provide appropriate attribution. And if you do do so, let me know. I'd I'd be more than willing to share whatever it is that you create by using the audio from these podcasts. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I am your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.